You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Good morning, Resonate. Good day to you. It's good to see you guys today. My name is Matthew Young, the site pastor over in Moscow, and uh, today I get to be the guy with the microphone on his face. So uh, I'm glad to be here, and, uh, and I'm glad to get to be here talking about the book of Jonah with you. Uh, this is a book of the Bible that for many years um, I've had a deep appreciation for. Um, I think there's a lot of different messages we can draw from. God can speak in a lot of different ways uh, as we look at the book of Jonah. And as we read today, we'll be in chapter two and uh, the third week of, of our look at the book of Jonah. And, uh, and in chapter two, we find Jonah in a very peculiar place. And sometimes in life, we find ourselves in peculiar places. And uh, it seems like uh, the more peculiar, the more interesting, and the more out of the normal um, the situation may be, uh, the more specific God may be trying to say something to us. We, talk, we talk a lot about in our church um, about uh, Kairos moments, these moments when God steps into our life, steps into our time and space and says, hey, I want you to get this. I have something to say to you. And we talk about these Kairos moments, they happen all the time when we read the scriptures and we're interacting with our roommates or with our people in our life and our family or uh, we see God speaking to us through the circumstances of life. We see him speaking to us through, through sermons and through songs that we sing. Um, through his truth, he speaks to us. But today we find Jonah, uh, as I said, in a very peculiar place. Um, and, uh, and God's trying to say something very specific to him. And it seems that as we read through this, that he's beginning to get it that he's beginning to get it. So if you have your copy of scripture with you, uh, go ahead and open that up to Jonah uh, chapter two. We'll read the last verse of chapter one and then, and then most of the verses in chapter two today. Um, thus far in the story, and Jonah is a story, unlike most prophetic uh, books in the Old Testament, um, where most of them you have just writings from the prophet and teachings of the prophet, Jonah's one of the unique ones that we get to see a, the story of his life, or, or a, story, a part of his life, a story from part of his life. And thus far in the story, we started off in chapter one where jo- God said to Jonah, he said, Jonah, I've got a special task for you. I want you to go to Nineveh and speak to these people and call them to repentance. And Jonah said, no thanks. I don't like those people. I don't want to go there. And so he, he attempts to flee from God. And indeed goes in the opposite direction, as far away as he can possibly think to go, uh, to Tarshish. Um, and so that's the direction he's headed in. So he gets on a boat and heads that way. And he doesn't get, doesn't get very far before God sends a storm. And the storm is uh, threatening to sink the ship. The, the other sailors and men on the ship are, are freaking out understandably, uh, as, as this storm stirs, the ESV calls it a tempest, and it gets more and more tempestuous, which is just a great word. If you can work that into your vocabulary this week, try it. It's tempestuous. That snowstorm the other night was tempestuous. Um, whatever. Um, anyhow, so the storm is, is stirring, and, and they're like, this is, this is crazy. They're, what do we do? They, uh, they began to say, well, it seems that this is out of the ordinary. They, they say, it seems that God, if there's a God, he's saying, trying to say something to us because this storm is the craziest storm we've ever seen. He must be trying to say something to us. All right, it must be someone's fault. So they, they roll the dice and say, it's that guy. It's Jonah. And say, come to Jonah. Jonah, what's happening? What did you do? Who are you? And Jonah says, well, you're right, guys. It's my fault. And uh, he he proposes a solution. He says, throw me overboard and probably it's going to work out all right for you. And they said, no, 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 that's crazy. We don't throw you overboard. That's like murder. That's killing you. That, 
we don't go that far. And, uh, but the, stir- the storm gets more and more tempestuous. And uh, so they say, all right, well, let's throw him overboard. And sure enough, they throw him overboard. The, cal- the storm calms. And we pick up there at the very end of chapter one. And it says this, chapter one, verse 17, it says, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I don't know exactly how it happened, but he, as, as he sees this, as he's sinking into the water, he sees the men on the boat. He sees the, almost instantaneously the storm calms and the men on the boat begin to worship his God, not their own gods, but his God. And then that's the last thing he sees at some point, he begins to sink and is swallowed by this fish. That God provided a fish and he's swallowed by it. And he's there for three days and three nights. Now, I don't know if you ever spent anywhere for three days and three nights, but at some point during that time, as he's inside this fish, he realizes, you know, I I don't think I'm dead yet. And uh, when you lay somewhere like this, or like this, or however you lay when you're inside of a fish, for three days and three nights, you begin to think. You begin to ponder life. Begin to ponder all that you've seen and experienced and all that's happened to you and begin to think about things. And at some point when he realizes, oh, I'm not dead, he begins to think uh, not just um, about uh, being dead, but he begins to think about his life and think about how did I get here? What is going on? This is a very interesting situation, a very peculiar situation I found myself in. God, what are you trying to say to me? It was a Kairos moment for him. God, what are you saying to me? And so at some point, at the conclusion of three days and three nights, somewhere in there, he finally, all of his thoughts lead him to a prayer. His thoughts lead him to prayer. He begins to think about his life. He begins to think about God. He begins to think about what has happened. And those thoughts lead him to this prayer. So in chapter one of, or verse one of chapter two, we see Jonah pray and he says this, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and, and and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows, they passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, the weeds that were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed me in forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So he says this prayer, and we begin to see that uh, something is changing in Jonah. Something begins to change in Jonah. Now, up until this point, Jonah has been, and even as he communicates through this prayer, uh, from the very beginning of the book to, to through this prayer, he's on a downward spiral, on a downward spiral. Where he starts, starts in likely in Jerusalem where he, where he is the prophet for Israel, uh, as a prophet in Israel probably lived. Stay close to the king, stay close to the, the place of power, stay close, stay close to the place where his voice could be heard, stayed in Jerusalem in the capital. 
And then from there, he says, as he fled and, and went the opposite direction of where uh, God was calling him to, he went down to Joppa. He went down to Joppa. So even just geographically where that was is a higher elevation in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And he went down to this coastal town of Joppa. And then it says there he got onto a ship and then he went down into the ship. Jonah's showing us the symbolism of this downward spiral of his life. He goes down into the belly of the ship, into the, into the hull of the ship, takes a nap. The storm comes, he's asleep. The sailors come down to him and they say, dude, what did you do? So they eventually throw him. Uh, he goes from being down in the ship to then down into the ocean. And you begin to see him slowly descend as he communicates what is happening through this prayer, what happened to him. He began to descend down, down into the ocean, down to the floor of the sea, to the roots of the mountains, as the, sea, uh, as the seaweed covered his head, this downward spiral. He's at the bottom and he can't go any lower. And that's when, as he's at a, as low as he could possibly go, as the oxygen that was in his lungs as he took his last breath is now about to, to be gone, he finds himself at the bottom of the ocean and death is there waiting for him. And then he, and this fish swallows him. God sends a fish. We often think of the fish in the story. When Josh talked about last week, sometimes the fish uh, hijacks the whole story. And we think of this fish as part of, the, of God's punishment. Well, don't, don't disobey God or he'll have you swallowed by a fish. But as we, as we read this, we actually see that the fish is supplied as a means of his salvation, a means to rescue him from certain death of drowning there at the bottom of the ocean. It's also, as we said, it's a good, he provide a really good place for Jonah to think. He can't go anywhere at this point. He can't flee anymore because his life is out of his control. And so all he can do is think and ponder. So we, ask, we have to ask the question, well, how did Jonah get here? How did he get to this place, this peculiar place? How did he get here? Well, well obviously, number one, because he was disobedient. We, we've said that. Yes, that is partly why. But if, let's look at it from a different angle. It's also because God provided because God provided. The storm, it says in verse one, in chapter one, verse four, it says that God provided this storm. God sent this storm. And he says again in, in chapter one, verse 17, that we just read, that God provided this fish to come and swallow Jonah. Both of these were responses to his disobedience, but it's important to see that even in his running, he couldn't escape God's attention, he couldn't escape God's provision, and he couldn't escape God's influence on his life. We've said this already, but we need to understand, we've said this already in this, in this series, but we need to understand that, that when we run from God, if we think we can escape him, that's false. If we, can th if we think by not doing what God has called us to, well, that he'll leave us alone. Well, that's certainly not true. In fact, running from God doesn't mean God will leave you alone. In fact, it may mean that he will go to extreme measures to get your attention. He'll go to extreme measures to get your attention and hopefully to bring you back. It's interesting to know that, or note that God, in sending this fish, fish to rescue him, that he was indeed trying to, re to rescue him and bring him back, to redeem Jonah to himself, to bring him to a place of fleeing from him, to bring him back to where he needed to be, where he was meant to be, where he was, uh, where he was called to be with God in relationship with God. Because God had ever, other prophets. He could have said, well, throw Jonah overboard and we'll be done with him. Finish with that guy. He was so rebellious. Glad we got rid of him. But no, he said, I'm going to go actually, I'm going to go get him. I'm going to go rescue him. God had other prophets in Israel at this time. The prophet Amos, who also has a book of the Bible, where he records his teachings and his prophecies. He could have said, well, since Jonah's gone, I guess I could send Amos to Nineveh. 
But no, that's not what he chose to do. He said, I have something specific for, for Jonah. I want to go rescue Jonah. I want him to be a part of this. And I think it's, and I think it's important as we read this prayer, we see that, that Jonah actually recognizes God's provision here. He recognizes that God provides uh, within this. Uh, ver- verse three of chapter two, he says, you cast me into the sea. Your ways they swept over me. We said this phrase for a while and resonate now, but, but God has it all rigged. And we see it right here that it was God's storm. It was God's ways. It was God who made him sink. It was God who brought him to the place of almost death. He says in verse two in the ESV, in the ESV he says, Sheol, I was in the belly of Sheol. The NIV says the land of the dead. The, the ancient Hebrew, the ancient Jewish perspective of Sheol, the land of the dead, was that this is the place of God's punishment, the place of God's wrath, where God would, 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 would pay the punishment for our disobedience to him. And he said, here I am. I'm ready to receive the death that I've earned for myself. But, in verse eight, but yet you have brought me up from the pit. You, God, have brought me up from the pit. And here we see the change in Jonah's direction from this downward spiral to the very bottom of the ocean, this downward spiral spiritually, this downward spiral emotionally to this place. But, or yet, you brought me up from the pit. I think it's interesting and we need to recognize in our lives that oftentimes we find ourselves down and out. We find ourselves uh, in dark and lonely places when all of our efforts to save ourselves and take care of ourselves and provide for ourselves have gotten us nowhere. It's in those moments when we feel like, oh, what else can I do? It's in those moments that God is waiting for us. It's in those moments when we find ourselves down that God is ready to bring us up. And that's a key principle that we see here in this prayer and in this part, in this, in this redemption of Jonah that we see here in chapter two. There's a, uh, the great poet of the 1990s, Coolio, once said, you gotta, gotta get up to get down. Coolio had it backwards. You actually have to go down to get up. It's a terrible reference, but I thought if I could work a Coolio in, why not, you know? <clears throat> that that oftentimes we need to recognize when we are down that God is trying to get our attention. And this isn't a full explanation of, of the problem of suffering and pain in the world, no, but it is a way to, to view the things that happen in our life with perspective. And to say, man, if things are falling apart in my life, if things are not going as I had planned, that it's God wanting to speak to us, that God is wanting to get our attention and call us back. And he said there <clears throat> that you brought me up from the pit. You brought me up from the pit. As the saying goes, you only realize that God is all you need when God is all you have. Sometimes that may seem trite, but it's so true. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 10, 39, you must lose your life to truly find it. You must lose your life to truly find it. So here we see that he goes from this downward spiral to begins to make upward momentum, upward movement. This change of direction sounds like a term that we often use uh, within our conversation, within Resonate, within Christendom, um, we often talk about this term repentance. It's to turn from someone's sin. In fact, that's part of a Kairos moment. As you say, I was headed in this direction and God got my attention and brought these things together. I discussed it. I reflected on this. I put it together and I saw that God wants to change my direction. He wants me to go in a new direction. So Jonah was, was literally headed in the opposite direction that God had called him to. He gets his attention here at the bottom of the ocean and begins to move in a new direction from going down to beginning to move up, from, from turning his face away from God, to, as we'll see here in just a moment, to turning his face toward God. 
as it becomes clear to him that God is in control and that God has orchestrated this fish to rescue him, he sees what has happened and he looks and he thinks about the temple. He thinks about the temple of God back in Jerusalem, back where he came from, back where he, the place where he received his calling to go to Nineveh in the first place, back to where he, probably where he received his calling to be a prophet. He says it twice in chapter two, he references the temple. Verse four, he says, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your, t- your holy temple. And again in verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple, into your holy temple. Now, I'm about to get into some ancient Jewish religion and some ancient Jewish religious practices. And it's very key that you, you stick with me through this to understand that what, what Jonah is saying here, and when we understand what he's saying here, it, it reveals to us a change of his heart and a deepening of his understanding of who God is. For ancient Israel, the temple was where God was. The temple was where God was, and it was where they went to communicate as a nation to God. Once a year, they would go to the temple uh, the, the nation would gather together on the day of atonement. It was the place where they, they routinely went to go and make sacrifices. And whenever they had the, the, the festivals, they would go there um, to make these sacrifices and to worship God and to communicate with him. As a nation, they would go to communicate with him there. And in this temple, in the center of the temple, as the Bible describes it, is this place called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. And the only time someone went into the Holy of Holies was this once a year on the year of atonement when the high priest would go in. And in the center of the Holy of Holies where the high priest would go into was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant uh, had something in the center of it. In the center of the Ark of the Covenant was the law of God. In fact, it was the the two tablets that Moses had brought down way back in in the story of the Exodus. And he came down from Mount Sinai and he brought down these two tablets and on them were inscribed the Ten Commandments, the, the cornerstone of the law of God. The law of God is communicated there and it's inside this box in the Ark of Covenant in the center of the Holy of Holies, in the center of the temple. <clears throat> and, and, and whenever Israel would come to God, as they came to meet with God and God would come into the temple to meet with them in his Holy of Holies and they'd go through the sacrificial ceremony to make everything right so that they could communicate. Um, They would come before him with the law between God and them. The high priest would approach God and between he and God, the presence of God there in the Holy of Holies was the law of God encased in the Ark of the Covenant. He did this so that God put between him and said, if you're gonna come to me, you have to come to me through the law. You have to come to me through the law. And this is the bad news. And as as, as Jonah is at the bottom of the ocean, he's reflecting on this. He's reflecting on both some bad news and some good news. The bad news is that when we come to God, as Jonah, as Israel would come to God, they had to go to God through the law. The law is this. Let me give you a brief definition. He says the the law is an outline, the Ten Commandments in this case, as an outline of, of the character of God the outline of the character of God that calls us to build our life on the, and on the model of his greatness. God says, this law communicates who I am. I have order. I, I bring you into community. This is how it's meant to be. It's what you're created in. This communicates his character and it models his greatness. And it's a model for us of his greatness. And he says, follow this. And we all know, Jesus talked about it. The, the, the Old Testament's full of it. The reality that no one is very good at following 
this law. No one follows this law well. And God says, if you're going to come to me, you have to come through the law. Well, that's a, that's a bad situation for all of us. It's a bad situation for Israel. So God recognizing this, he provided a way that they could still have communion with him. They could still come to him. So once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But, faith, but on top of the Ark was actually something else. On top of the lid, it was like the lid of, the, of this box that the, that the law was placed in, was this thing called the place of atonement or the place of propitiation, as some translations say. The place of propitiation is place of atonement or another term for it was the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the name of this lid that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant and as God and his presence was there and the high priest would come in and approach God. And the only way they could do so is if he sprinkled the blood of a sacrifice. The blood of a sacrifice that had paid the price on behalf of Israel so that the penalty of breaking the law could be paid. So God said, I will allow an animal to be sacrificed in your place. The price of breaking my law, of not upholding the law that I've set before as a model of my character, a model of who I am and my greatness. If you break that and you don't allow it to be a model for you, uh, if you go against my law or you break the rules essentially, then the payment of that, or the, the, the price of that is your death. But God allowed them, allowed Israel to approach them and said, I'll allow someone else to take that death in your place. The, the sacrifice of this animal in this place, as the Old Testament communicates, this was a bull. And so the high priest would come in and sprinkle the blood of the, of the bull, of, of that animal on, on the, the mercy seat, thus allowing, thus allowing Israel to have communion with God and to approach him. So God allowed for the animal to pay that penalty, to pay the death for Israel's sin, temporarily restoring their relationship. Notice this, in God's mercy, the mercy seat, he allowed a payment, propitiation. The ter that term means to, a, to turn aside wrath through a payment. When I say this term wrath, you may have this idea what God's wrath is, what wrath is, and that may be based on what you've experienced of wrath. Maybe someone had their wrath on you or you had your wrath on someone else. You got angry with them. Maybe you got physical. Maybe you verbally uh, overflowed with anger. You need to understand that what this is communicating, God's wrath here is this picture of it's simply what had to be. It was the laws, the way thing, God created things. So it's like this, if... Uh, Say you have a, your, your internet bill, however you get internet at your house. And, uh, and so you pay that bill for cable or the phone line or whatever it is that you can have internet so you can get Wi-Fi and binge watch Netflix shows and not use all your data when you're at home and all that stuff. Let's say you forgot to pay it. You didn't pay that bill. And so eventually the internet company comes and cuts off your service. And you'd be like, well, that, I, that's to be expected because I, I broke the rules if I didn't pay for it. So they gave me what I deserved. In the same way, in breaking the rules of God's law, we get what we were deserved. Or God said, uh, someone needs to get what is deserved from this. There must be death from this. So this place of propitiation of getting what you deserve uh, is, is turned aside. So again, propitiation atonement says uh, to turn aside wrath through a payment. So the payment in this case, in the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant, it's the sacrifice of an animal. So that's what, that's what Jonah was thinking about. That's what Jonah was thinking about from within the fish. Twice he mentions in his prayer, begins to think of turning towards God's temple. 
this place where God's grace and God's mercy was made clear. That God allowed them, even though they had broken the law, even though they were terrible at following what God led them to, even though not just Jonah, but as the nation as a whole, the people in the nation were terrible at following him. They regularly disobeyed him and broke the, co- broke the covenant, broke the, the commandments. And yet God allowed a way for, him to have relation, for them to have a relationship with him. You need to understand that when he's reflecting on this, it's the gospel. There was bad news, but yet there is good news that God allows a way, God made a way. Let me read, you, read to you what this sounds like in the book of Romans in chapter three, as Paul writes about this through the lens of Jesus Christ. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe you've heard that before. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sin committed beforehand unpunished. So Paul writes about this. He's essentially explaining the gospel. He says, look, it's the same thing. It's the same thing as this ancient Israel's practice of worship, that there needed to be a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation to pay the penalty of the breaking of the law, to pay the penalty of the sin. And he says that uh, it was Christ, it was the shedding of Christ's blood on our behalf that provides this opportunity, provides this grace for us. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice to satisfy the law on our behalf once and for all. Whereas Israel had to keep making these sacrifices year after year after year. This Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. Jesus is the temple that we go to, to get to the father. That's why in John chapter two, verse 19, Jesus says, as he's standing uh, among the religious leaders, he goes in and he actually wrecks shop in the temple and says, what you're doing here is not okay. And he says, in fact, if you destroy this temple, stand, while standing in the temple, temple and then he said, makes a statement, he says, if you destroy this temple, referring to himself, I'll rebuild it in three days. It was a prophetic statement that he was making about his soon to come death, burial, and resurrection. And he made a statement of saying, hey, I'm the new temple. I'm the new temple. So you need to understand that when Jonah is praying this prayer from within the fish, it's as if while he had no clarity, no full clarity of who Jesus was or the coming of Jesus one day, it's as if he was looking to Jesus while he was in the belly of that fish. And the same is true for us, that we can come to the Father through Jesus, the mercy seat, through his blood that was shed for us. So Jonah is pondering this, God's mercy and God's grace as he recognizes that God has saved him. Even him, the running prophet, even him, this terrible guy who was headed in the other direction, even him, God, stepped in to save him from death. And this is God's grace. This is God's grace. And in the middle of the story of Jonah running, we see this beautiful picture of God's grace. And as my, I submit to you that one of the main themes of the book of Jonah is God's grace. And he's, God is desperately, repeatedly trying to communicate to God how deep and how great his grace is. Let me give you a definition. God brought him to the, to the bottom of the ocean to teach him about his grace. And this is what grace is. An undeserving person is shown favor by an um, 
by an unobligated giver. You should write that down. Put it in the back of your Bible. Write that down and be, come back to that. Remember, put it in your journal. Grace, an undeserving person is shown favor by an unobligated giver. Say it another way. To find, it means for you to find favor and be let into a place that you don't deserve or you don't have the right to be by a person who doesn't have to let you in there. To be let in even though you don't have to be let in, even though you deserve to be let in. Instead, you are let in. Look at Jonah 2, verse 6, just where Jonah begins to get this. I went down to the land whose bars closed, oh, closed upon me forever. I went down and I was, the bars were closed upon me forever. I was, on the, I was on the doorstep of death. I was on the outside, if you will. Yet, verse 6, yet you brought me up. My life, you brought up my life from the pit. I was on the outside, but you brought me up. I was on the outside, but you let me in. Oh, Lord, my God. Jonah deeply wanted to be in. He wanted to be in. And if we look back at a story and we look at the full story and the full character of who Jonah was in the Bible, we see that he was, his running was actually part of a fear that he wouldn't be in. His running was part of a fear that he wouldn't be in. And specifically for him, it was the inner circle of the leadership of Israel. And maybe even broader, he wouldn't be in in a liked person. This is something I think we all struggle. Certainly, this is a major battle in my own life of, of a desire to be liked, a desire to be accepted, a desire to be wanted. Jonah's only other mention in the Bible comes in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. It's the only other place where we see one of Jonah's prophecies. And the only other prophecy we have of Jonah is where he prophesied that Israel's borders would be expanded. He prophesied that Israel would actually expand their borders and take back this land that they once was theirs and would become theirs once again. They would get this land back. Now, you may not know a lot about prophets in ancient Israel, but that's a, not a very common thing. That was a very positive prophecy that he got to give. Hey guys, good news. God's going to give us this land back. All right, yeah. They're like, all right, Jonah. Thanks, man. Good word, bro. High fives. Look, most prophets, when they spoke to Israel, if you read other prophetic books in the Old Testament, it's very dark. Most of the time they're saying, they're saying, Israel, quit doing what you're doing or you will experience the consequences of your disobedience. This will not go well for you if you continue in this direction. Stop doing what you're doing. And what do we all do? From little kids to grown adults, we all say, hey, stop doing what you're doing. Oftentimes we say, yeah, I don't like what you're telling me. I don't agree with you. I'm going to continue to do what I want to do. This is my life. I do what I want to do. Well, Israel did the same thing. and The prophets kept having to say the same stuff to them. But in Jonah's prophetic, uh, prophetic resume, the one thing that he had said, prophesied, was actually good news. And so likely pro Jonah was a, was a loved prophet. Hey, this, this prophet's different than the rest of them. He actually says good stuff for us. He's like proclaiming that our borders are going to be expanded. We're going to have some national, national expansion. And within that, you see Jonah's own attitude that we saw in chapter one wrapped up in this. When the, when the sailor said, who are you? Where are you from? Who's your God? He says, well, I'm a Hebrew. And so he starts with his, his nationalistic identity. This is who I am. I'm a Hebrew. So Jonah, began, we, see, we saw his, his identity was I'm, I'm Hebrew first. He goes nation first, and I'm a prophet of God second. We saw that in his orientation and how he responded, how he acted out of his identity. And he said, hey, I care more about my nation than I do uh, about what God's called me to do. I care more about, care more about I'm afraid that God's going to help out our enemies 
And I care about what God's calling me to do as a prophet of God. Jonah's fear was that if he goes to Nineveh, his status and his name and reputation are on the line. That his obedience will cost him, could cost him everything that he's built for himself. The king likes him. The leaders, the hierarchy in the kingdom like him. The people say, yeah, Jonah, the guy that's like, he's the good prophet. We like this prophet. They all liked him and that was on the line. If he goes to Nineveh, to their enemy, to this terrible people in Nineveh, then he's going to lose all of that. He's going to lose his reputation. He's going to lose his favor that he had with these people. He's going to lose all that he had. Jonah wanted to be in. He wanted to be in with the king and the hierarchy and with the people around him. And he, he had earned that right. He felt that he had earned that right to be in. And he thought that following God would cost him that. And now he finds himself at the bottom of the ocean. That life is gone. That life of being in and that life of having the favor of these people it doesn't matter anymore. Who cares? It's at the bottom of the ocean, inside of a fish. And all he has accomplished is useless to him. The king's not sending a boat. The king's not looking for him. The people that like him, not, they don't care about him anymore. Nobody's looking for him. And that's when God shows Jonah his grace. That's when God shows Jonah his grace. And to help us make sure we understand grace, I, have, I want you to get this and get this in Jonah's case. Help us reflect on grace in our own life. I'm going to give us three brief case studies, brief case stories. Number one, imagine this. You're an employer and you, you, you hire some employees to come and work for you. And after two weeks or after a month, when time is due and the, the agreed upon time is due, you pay them. You pay your employees the money that they've earned. And the question is, is that grace? No. Because you were obligated to pay them. That was part of the contract probably that they signed up and they said, I'll work for you if you pay me. You're obligated to pay them and you're, it's, you're okay to pay them because they've earned it. They've done the work you've asked them to do. Is that grace? No. You were obligated and they earned it. Number two, let's say, let's say you're in a class and uh, you have a really good, uh, you have a really hard teacher. But in the lab and, and in the class, there's this teacher's assistant, a TA. And this teacher's assistant, she's really good. She's really helpful. You might not have passed the class. You and several of your classmates probably wouldn't have passed the class if it wasn't for her help, giving you extra time and study and helping you understand the professor's notes and helping you find where you can read in the textbook to, to further understand this and what maybe you need to study for the test to, to clarify some stuff. You recognize you couldn't have done it without this, this TA. So at the end of the semester, you take this TA, you take her out to dinner. You and the group of your friends, you take her out to dinner, just say thank you for her extra help and the effort she gave. She didn't have to do that, but, but she did. Is that grace when you gave her, you took her out to dinner? Is that grace? No, because uh, you weren't obligated to do it, but she had done a service for you and she was deserving. You weren't obligated, that's true, but she had done something for you and so it kind of makes sense. Verse three, or number three. Let's say you have a neighbor and this neighbor is the worst, right? Maybe you've had this neighbor. He's the worst. Uh, he complains about everything. He complains about where you park on the public parking in the street. He complains about uh, the noise you make when you have your friends over. You know, he, he's like, oh, you're being too loud. I, hear, I can hear you talking and I can hear you stomping around and I can hear your music. And yet you hear his music. And, uh, and he, when, he, when, he, but when you hear his music, you don't do anything. But when he hears your music, he calls the cops and makes, uh, you know, noise violation complaints. And uh, this guy that's just, he's hard to get along with and is difficult to get along with. But then you learn that your neighbor has gotten sick. 
And so you go to him and you begin to take care of him and you, you drive him to the doctor. And you take him home and you, and you cook for him. And you, and you take him to the, the, to the pharmacy to help get his prescriptions and maybe even help pay for him. Is that grace? Is that grace? Well, you weren't obligated. He'd done nothing to deserve what you gave him, your service to him. You weren't obligated and he was by no means deserving. He was a punk. He was a jerk. He was mean to you. Did nothing nice to you. Is that grace? Yes. That's what grace looks like. That's what grace looks like. Understand Jonah's in the bottom of the ocean. He's done nothing to earn God's favor and yet God rescues him. Sends this fish to rescue him and, and sustain his life within that fish. To bring him back. Tim Keller says it like this and Throughout the sermon, I'm indebted to Tim Keller and his teachings on this, and, and, and he's just re recently written a book on, on the book of Jonah that's, that's really good. Uh, Tim Keller says this, no one is so good that they don't need grace, and no one is so bad that they can't receive it. No one is so good that they don't need grace, and no one is so bad that they can't receive it. You see, the grace levels the playing field. It levels the playing field and removes all of our competition to get God's favor because we're all the same in this situation, undeserving yet freely given grace. Just like Jonah, he'd done nothing to earn it, did nothing to deserve it. And yet God gave him, God gave him his grace. As we reflect on this, we think about it, there's three ways that people approach this. There's three ways, three types of people as they interact with God's grace. I wanna, I wanna read them to you. And certainly I, I hope that as I generalize this into three different ways, I hope that you can see yourself maybe into somewhere where you lean to, what you tend towards. Number one, too low a view of their own sin. Some people have too low a view of their own sin. They can't grasp God's grace. They don't think they are that bad. They think, well, you know, thanks for the grace, God, but I guess, I guess maybe I need it, but I don't know. Maybe it was some way I don't recognize, but I don't, I don't even know if I needed that. In fact, this, this talk about being a sinful and all of sin and falls short of the glory of God and this, this talk of their failure these types of people, they don't really like to hear that stuff. They'd rather hear a more positive message about how, you know, I'm good and there's, 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 there's good within me and I can do some good stuff in the world and for the people around me and I can do some good stuff for God. They'd prefer that, that side of the message. And, and, and to some extent, they think that anything God gives them is because they deserve it. They, give, they think of any blessings in God's general grace that he has for all humans, the fact that we can live and breathe that he provides for us warm places in the cold, that he provides for us air to breathe, just the very basics of sustaining life. We find God's grace in that we don't deserve it, and yet he allows us to continue to live even in our rebellion against him. They think, well, I think the good stuff that I have, to some extent I've earned it, because I mean, look at how good my life is. Look at all the good stuff I've done, or look at how, look at how together I've got it. And so they have too low a view of their own sin, they can't grasp their need for God's grace. The second type of person, they have too low a view of God's mercy and they won't receive God's grace. They have too low a view of God's mercy and won't receive God's grace. Their issue is that they know that they're not good, but they don't think that God would want to save them. That's part of it. They, they know that they're, they're good, but they don't think that God would want to save them. Kind of their idea in their mind is I shouldn't have to have God's grace because, well, I should be able to do this on my own. I should be able to get myself together. I should be able to figure this out but I didn't, so I'll try harder. I'll try harder and eventually they fail. And then when I fail, well, then I'll be down for a bit, but then I'll try again. It's a religious roller coaster 
of I'm up, I think I'm doing all right, I'm doing all this stuff, look at all the stuff I'm doing for the church, look at all this stuff that I'm, all these ways that I'm serving, look at these titles I have within my leadership, look at these things that I'm doing, I'm doing good. Uh, but then I fail. It's like, oh, dang it. Okay, I'll pull it together. I'll figure this out. I'll change my ways. I'll muscle it out and I'll try to change my behavior so that I can be in alignment. I don't want to receive God's grace because I think I can fix it myself. I've got myself into this. I've made my mess and I'll fix it myself. I'll earn God's favor. That's type two. And then type three. Type three, they recognize their sin and they see the magnitude of God's grace. They recognize their sin and they see the magnitude of God's grace. They recognize that, yes, I'm broken. Yes, I haven't done it right. Yes, I'm messed up. Yes, I have issues. And God has come to me and provided a way, made a way that I can be in relationship with him. He has took me from the outside and brought me in. He has accepted me. It's acceptance I've longed to look for. Like Jonah, he was longing to look for, longing for acceptance and not until he found himself barred outside of life. Barred outside of life on the outside that God said he recognized God had brought him. He looked to the temple. He looked at that place of God's mercy and grace. And he said, but God has accepted me. God has rescued me. I can see it in this fish. I'm still alive. My God, you have rescued me. Tip Keller, again, he says, ignorance of the depth of God's grace causes our most severe problems in life. Until we understand it, we are, like Jonah, just a shadow of what we could be and should be. Until we truly understand God's grace, we'll never fully function as God has created us to. We'll never fully experience life as it's meant to be experienced. To receive grace, you have to admit the depth of your sin and accept God's mercy for you. You have to think about it, just like, just like Jonah did. It, it took him three days to finally get to this place where he reflected on it and realized, oh, this fish I'm in is actually it's for my rescue. This is actually God's provision to help save me. Oh my God, God, why are you? I rebelled against you, and yet here you are saving me. I'm looking to your temple and being reminded, of, oh, you provide a way for us to come back to you. He thought about it, and that thought led him to this place of prayer. You know, here's how you know you're receiving God's grace. This is how you know you're receiving God's grace. When you stop thinking more highly of yourself than others and you have confidence in God's mercy that helps you take risk in your obedience to your loving God. When we finally begin to receive God's grace, we begin to stop competing with other people and seeing them as not good enough. Like Jonah did. Oh, those Ninevites, they're the worst. I hate them. I hate them and want the worst for them. And we finally begin to receive God's grace, your heart begins to change for the people in your life. You begin to be gracious towards them. Maybe you, maybe even you would begin to treat your enemies, that terrible neighbor, or your family back home, or that roommate, or that person in your class, or that guy at work, or your enemies. You begin to treat them graciously, giving them what they don't deserve. You begin to see your heart change towards others. That's when you know, oh, God's grace is changing me, changing my perspective and changing my actions. And the second thing is that you begin to have a confidence in God's mercy that helps you to take risks in your obedience to your loving God. You have confidence in his mercy. You have confidence in his grace. And therefore, if God is on your side, if God has accepted you, if you are in with the creator of the universe, the one who knows you more than anyone else on the face of this earth, the one who knows what you're made for, knows who you are, how terrible you are, and yet he loves you, yet he's come to rescue you. He gives you a confidence and a boldness in life, to do things that normal humans don't do, to forget about what you've created for yourself and your reputation and, and, and what other people will think. You put that stuff aside and you say, all I care about is the one who truly loves me, 
that doesn't love me based on what I've done for him, but the one who comes and rescues me even when I don't deserve it. You begin to take risks in your obedience. God says, do this, and you're like, hey, you're the one who's God, and you're the one that's calling me, and you see it all clearly, so I'm going to trust you above anything I can see, and by whatever makes sense, or whatever my friends or family, whatever the, my community, whatever culture, whatever says, I'm going to follow you. You, be, you know that you're receiving God's grace when you're willing to take those kinds of risks. You're, you're willing to be sent into God's mission when you, when, you're, when, you, when you receive God's grace. And finally, his prayer ends in verses eight and nine with a statement of clarity. Jonah 2, 8 and 9, he says this, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This idea of idols, it's worshiping anything other than God. Perhaps Jonah, because there was other idol worship happening in Israel and realized even some of the leaders, even the king himself was involved in, in, in kings and, and his lineage at this time in Israel had been worshiping other idols and the, and the gods of other nations around them. Uh, he recognized maybe it was that. Maybe he sees his, his, his affection or his worship of the king and the, the attention of the king and the leaders in, the, in Israel uh, and how that was shaping his life and his attitude and his character. He realized, oh, that is an idol. I'm worshiping those things. I'm giving my life and organizing my life around those things instead of God. Look at what I've done and where it's gotten me. He began to say this. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love in the Hebrew this is originally written in the Hebrew, that idea, that, that word steadfast love, another way to translate that is grace. His steadfast love, his grace. They forsake their hope in God's grace. If you're worshiping something else, you're not paying attention to God's grace. Verse nine, but I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you, O God. What I have vowed, I will pay. And then he makes maybe the greatest statement in this prayer, perhaps the greatest statement in this whole book of the Bible. Maybe the greatest statement in the Bible, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He gets it. He begins to understand God's grace. He's, he's turned from his uh, going in the opposite direction of God. He repents. He goes back, looks towards God, to the place of God, and place of God's mercy, and place of God's grace. And he says, God, you have saved me. Salvation belongs to you. Salvation belongs to you. It is yours. It is your doing. It is your work. Not what I've done, but what you have done. What you've done on my behalf and what you've done to rescue me, what you've done uh, to bring me back into relationship with you. Brothers and sisters, Resonate Church, may we understand this kind of grace. May we be willing to reflect on our life and receive this kind of grace. Throughout the preparation of this, this sermon, as I reflected on this chapter and reading of, of, about this chapter and reading this prayer of Jonah, kept coming back to me as this hymn that I used to sing as a kid in the church where I grew up in this old, this old hymn about God's grace. I want to read it to you. It says this marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's Mount outpoured there where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Speaking of Jesus and his sacrifice for us, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe all who are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? Will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. May we be willing, wherever we are, to turn to God and receive his grace. To know that he loves us deeper than we can ever imagine. More than, we could ever, more than we ever deserve. We're not deserving, and yet he gives us this favor and invites us in. 
It's the truth. It's the gospel. And it's what he has for us. It's what he invites us into. May we receive it. May we live in it. Allow it to transform us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love and your grace that is astounding. It is beyond what we deserve. It is beyond what we can control. It is beyond ourselves. God, your grace that is greater than all our sin. God, change us, transform us through it. God, deepen our understanding that we can be who you created us to be for your glory. And as you are glorified in our lives and through our lives, may we experience the the true joy and blessing, seeing your mission lived out in us and through us. God, we thank you for how you pursue us, how you come to rescue us, despite our efforts to flee from you and be in rebellion against you. God, you put your own blood, the blood of your son on the mercy seat to once and for all be a propitiation to pay the penalty on our behalf. God, let that sink in. Let us think about that. Bring us to a quiet place like Jonah was in the belly of this fish. Bring us to a place where we have to think about that, where we have to ponder that. And remind us that salvation belongs to you and you will bring it to our lives. God, as we worship now, stir our hearts, stir our minds. Help us to pray prayers like Jonah did, turning to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.